welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. For more information about our faith community, feel free to visit gatewaychurch.org.nz. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy this message. We've been in a series for the last three or four weeks on the book of Isaiah. And uh, so far we've managed the first five chapters, uh, which I've suggested to you is really the prologue to the book of Isaiah. Most prophets begin their books, particularly, say, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. They begin with the, um, with the calling that they receive from God to that prophetic ministry. Isaiah's call isn't until chapter 6. Now, there's a couple of reasons that that could be so. Number one, he could well have been a prophet before he encountered God in that way in Isaiah chapter 6. Um, most scholars seem to think that rather than that being the case... Isaiah chapter 6 is in fact his call, but the first five chapters are like a prologue to the story. And in that prologue, we are introduced to the recurring motifs that, that happen through the book of Isaiah. And largely those first five chapters have to do with issues of both judgment and hope. And we've seen how those five chapters introduce us to Jerusalem, the community of faith at the time. And I've suggested to you that Jerusalem is a metaphor for the community of faith and not simply just a city with bricks and mortar. If you read it that way, then really there's a lot in the book of Isaiah that doesn't have much to do with us. But if you see Isaiah as a metaphor for the community of faith, the people of God, then you can use your bifocal glasses, as it were, and you can look at both the present circumstances that Isaiah was addressing and then look up and down through the ages, you see us as the community of faith. And the message of Isaiah suddenly has incredible relevance, not just to a people long ago, but to the community of faith in our time. And what we saw is the community of faith as it was in its actual condition and the community of faith, as it was intended to be, the community of promise, the ideal. And there's this huge gap between the actual and the ideal. And the question that is posed by Isaiah's penetrating analysis into the situation that existed is how on earth can that Israel, that Jerusalem, become this Jerusalem? How can the people of God, in their actual position, their actual condition, ultimately be the people of God that he intended them to be? That's the penetrating question. So that's where we've got to. Now, what I'm about to do actually shouldn't be done, but um, uh, I'm going to do it anyway. Um, normally, we would make our way through the chapters, and, and it, it was my plan when I started to go from Isaiah 5 to the calling of Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6, and then into a scenario that occurs in chapters 7 through 9. But um, we're very aware that this is Palm Sunday, and we are, of course, going into the Holy Week, and next week is Easter. So as a result of that, what I'm going to do is leap over huge portions of Isaiah, get totally out of our order, and look at the mysterious servant songs that occur in the latter portion of Isaiah's prophecy, and try and link them up with this Easter season. Now, we will come back and try and fill in the gaps. What I'm doing is what some of you do when you're reading your murder mystery books. You jump straight to the end to find out who did it, and then you, came, you come back to see how the author actually gets there. And in a way, 
That's what I'm doing. Now, remember the question that Isaiah's prophecies are posing is, how can the present Israel, in its present incredibly corrupted place, ever become the Israel of promise? The ideal has not been realized. The promised faithful city is, in fact, corrupt, more like Sodom and Gomorrah, more like Babylon than than Jerusalem. God It says, looked for justice and righteousness. Instead, he found bloodshed and screaming. Remember Isaiah 5, uh, chapter 5, verse 7, that that play on words where somebody has translated, he looked for right but got riot. He looked for decency and got despair. So God has been incredibly disappointed by what he is presently seeing. Israel had been chosen, called and chosen, elected to be God's servant for the sake of the nations. Now, a servant is a person who is at the disposal of and under the orders and authority of another. The servant obeys the will, does the work, and represents the interests of another person. Israel was called to be that servant. Their forefather, Abraham, was called both servant of God and friend of God. David was designated, probably the most celebrated of all Israel's kings, designated first and foremost as God's servant. And the nation had been designated servants of God for the sake of the nations. Leviticus chapter 25 verse 55 in the message reads, the people of God are my servants, my servants whom I brought out of Egypt. So their identity and calling is wrapped up in this idea of servanthood, and it's one of the motifs that run through Isaiah. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 6 and 7, God had spoken to this newly constituted nation and said to them, if you will obey them, and he's talking about his laws, they will give you a reputation for wisdom and intelligence. When the surrounding nations hear these laws, they will exclaim, what what other nation is as wise and prudent as Israel? For what other nation, great or small, has God among them? He was saying, if you will follow me, if you will obey my laws, then the nations will be drawn to you. And we saw that presented as an ideal in the first verses of Isaiah chapter 2. The people streaming up to Jerusalem to learn of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We'd seen that. But throughout their history, Israel hadn't lived up to their destiny or their vocation. Corporate Israel, as the servant of Yahweh, had failed miserably, and by Isaiah's time, almost completely. We talked last week how they they went into Canaan, and the idea was that they would turn Canaan into Israel. And Hosea says of them, you are Canaan. They went into Canaan, and instead of turning Canaan into Israel, they were turned into Canaan. Instead of being at his disposal, under his orders, obeying his will, doing his work, and representing his interests, Hosea charged them with bringing forth fruit unto themselves. He said, you are an empty vine. You have brought forth fruit to yourself. You have become nationalistic and exclusive. You haven't represent God to the nations. You despise the nations. So through Isaiah, God speaks to this community. 
called to be his attentive servants, and he charges them with actually being almost the exact opposite of what he intended them to be. And so in Isaiah 42, verse 19 and 20, he says to them, who is blind but my servant, and deaf like my my messenger I send, who is blind like the one in covenant with me, blind like the servant of the Lord. You've seen many things, but you pay no attention. Your ears are open, but you do not listen. These people had failed spectacularly. Now, the question immediately arises, well, what will happen? Are the promises of God going to come to nothing? That's the question, by the way, that, I, that Paul raises in Romans chapter 11, verse 1, where he talks about the problem of this disobedient servant, Israel, and he says, does this mean then that God is so fed up with Israel that he had nothing more to do with them? Now, the answer in short is No. But the answer also heads in a direction that nobody is quite expecting. From Isaiah 42 onwards, 42, 49, 50, and 53, there emerges a mysterious figure that is simply called the servant or my servant. And it turns out that this servant will be the one who fulfills God's promises, obeys his will, does his work, and represents his interests. And this servant is revealed in a series of songs that unfold. There's four major ones. Some people see a fifth, but the four are found in Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 9, Isaiah 49, 1 through 13, Isaiah 50, 4 through 11, and Isaiah 52, verse 13, through the end of chapter 53. I'm not going to take time to read them, but it would be really helpful for our study if over the next week or so you did. Okay, that would be helpful. Now, the immediate question that is raised as you read these songs is regarding the identity of this servant. Who is this mysterious servant? If you've done any work on Isaiah, you will be aware that there are literally hundreds of books and articles on this subject. A famous professor of theology, S.R. Driver, once wanted to write a book on Revelation, a commentary on the book. When he reached these portions and encountered this mysterious servant and the songs concerning him, he became so confused and perplexed and overwhelmed with the identity of this person or people, that he finally abandoned the commentary and was never, ever published. So obviously then, if a professor of theology is overwhelmed, it's understandable that many of us could be as well. Now, tongue-in-cheek, both fingers crossed, acknowledging the incredible difficulty of all this with presumption, naivety, and handfuls of, uh, substantial handfuls, actually, of what some people would consider outright stupidity. I plan to take a theological machete and clear through the tangled jungle of scholarship and chop our way to clarity. Most of you will have no clue how outrageous that is. Uh, I actually remind myself of a young plumber who had just passed his apprenticeship and got his ticket and he stood thoughtfully viewing Niagara Falls and he said out loud to no one in particular, I think I can fix that. So, Here we go, okay? Now, broadly speaking, there are three different answers to the question, who's the prophet talking about? Who is this anonymous, mysterious servant? And the three broad answers go a people, a personification, a person, all right? 
Let me say it another way. All Jews are people. Some Jews, some representative Jews within the all Jews, a personification, one Jew, a person. And I want to look very briefly at those options. Firstly, all people, all Jews. God does call Israel my servant. From Abraham to David, and as I said before, ultimately the whole nation are referred to as God's servants. At least half the references to my servants in the book of Isaiah do refer to the people of Israel, the corporate servant. However, to merely say that this mysterious servant is simply that servant really creates some difficulties, and and they are... In summary, these. Number one, the servant is called by the individual he rather than the plural you. The prophet's description of this servant seemed much more appropriate to an individual rather than to a corporate group. The servant is righteous in in character, something that the corporate Israel clearly were not. The things that this servant was going to do were never done and could not be done by the nation as a whole. And then perhaps even most convincing of all is that part of this servant's mission is in fact to the nation Israel. Isaiah 49 verse 5 says, and, the Lord, and now the Lord says, he who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring back Jacob to himself, to gather Israel to himself. So clearly, if part of this servant's task is to minister to Israel and bring them back to God, he can't be them. So the second possibility is that it might be a personification. Some people within the larger group of people. It's supposed by some that this servant could be perhaps a remnant of godly Jews, and perhaps the servant is the good ones having a ministry to the bad ones. But that faces most of the same problems. The songs seem to reference an individual and not a whole group or a group within a group. The servant is perfect in his character, and while the remnant, the godly remnant, were more godly than the whole, they certainly weren't perfect. And the remnant didn't do and couldn't do what the servant does. So the third option is that the servant is one Jew, a single individual, perhaps the promised Messiah. And I'm sure that you've guessed by now that that's the direction that my machete chopping exercise is taking us. So what I want to do is now leap into the New Testament and with the benefit of hindsight, look back on perhaps who the identification, uh, trying to identify who this servant is. So if you go to the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 8, Philip is having an encounter with a high-ranking Ethiopian official. This official has been in Jerusalem to worship. He's making his way now home. And Philip meets him in the desert, pulls up alongside his chariot. And verse 28 says that this Ethiopian official is reading from the prophet Isaiah. Verse 32 informs us actually that he's reading from the fourth servant song from Isaiah 53, and the portion he's reading is, he was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and like a lamb dumb before his shearers, so he opened not his mouth. Now Philip, as he's walking along, asks the Ethiopian official, do you understand what you're reading? He acknowledges that he doesn't, and in verse 34, he asks the exact same question that we are asking of this Isianic text. He says, about whom I ask, does the prophet say this? Who's he talking about? Who is this person? 
And verse 35 says, Then Philip opened his mouth and began at the same scripture and preached Jesus unto him. So what I'm saying is with the benefit of hindsight, obviously that Isaiah and his listeners didn't have, we get some insight into whom the New Testament believers thought this mysterious servant was. With that in mind, let me go back and suggest what Philip might have said to this man as he's reading out of the book of Isaiah. As the history of Israel unfolds, it becomes abundantly clear that they would not and could not be God's faithful servant for the sake of the nations. They didn't obey his will. They didn't do his work. They didn't represent his interests. So God starts looking for perhaps even one, a smaller group perhaps, or even within the smaller group, one who could be that righteous, faithful servant. But the Bible says the Search was fruitless, and even the very best of possibilities failed. David looked fantastic for a while, but then, of course, there was the issue of Bathsheba and Uriah the Hittite. Solomon starts wonderfully, ends dreadfully. Hezekiah looks good for a season. All of them, all of these godly men look good for a time, but it's clear that even they fail. In Isaiah 59, verse 16, he says, he saw that there was no man, and he wondered that there was no one to intercede, no one to stand in the gap. Then his own arm brought him salvation, and his righteousness upheld him. And in Isaiah 63, verse 5, I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation. Now, this anonymous servant seems in some mysterious way to be God himself stepping in to do what corporate Israel as a whole, or in part, could not do. So the whole of the Old Testament can be seen as a search for faithful Israel, or a faithful Israelite through whom he could fulfill his promise to Abraham, that through Abraham's family, all the nations would be blessed. So you see this corporate Israel coming narrowing down, funneling down, as it were. I think I've got a diagram there. Yeah. Funneling down to a particularity, to actually one person. From a New Testament perspective, we might say, in the fullness of time, God sent his own son, born of a woman, born under the law. That phrase, born under the law, means he's a son of the law. He's an Israelite. He's Jewish. So Jesus comes as the true Israelite. He comes as the essence of what it was meant to be, to be Israel. Robert B. Strimple says, yes, Israel was called to be God's servant, a light to enlighten the nations and glorify God's name. But since Israel was unfaithful to her calling and, call, and failed to fulfill the purpose of her divine election, the Lord brought forth his elect one, his servant, the true Israel. Christopher Wright says this, the Messiah was Israel representatively and personified. The Messiah was the completion of all that Israel had been put in the world for. What God had been doing through no other nation, he now completes through no other person than Messiah Jesus. And he goes on to say this, the paradox is that precisely through the narrowing down of his redemptive work to the unique 
particularity of the single man Jesus, God opens the way to the universalizing of his redemptive grace to the nations. So the diagram changes and now looks like this. Israel is narrowed down to a particularity, a one person, a faithful Israelite. And through the work of that one faithful servant, the grace of God is opened up to the nations as God had promised Abraham many years before. The faithful servant comes and sums up in himself Israel's identity and vocation. Let me, let me just try and unpack this a little bit for you. Bishop N.T. Wright asked this question. He said, who did Jesus think he was? And then he responds, the first answer must be Israel in person. Israel's representative, the one in whom Israel's destiny was reaching its climax. I've been, I've been doing the series that I, I did, a num, uh, last, beginning of last year, I did a series here called One God, One Story, One Person. I've been doing that series again at, for our night congregation. And I've basically been saying a lot of people disconnect the story of the Old Testament from the New Testament. We shouldn't. It's one story. And Jesus doesn't start a new story, wiping away the law and bringing a whole new religion of grace. It's the continuation of the one story. Jesus is the climax of that story. He's the pivot of that story, but he doesn't change the story. And when you come to the New Testament, Matthew's gospel immediately dives into this idea of Jesus being the fulfillment, the embodiment of the Israel story. Matthew begins by recording the birth of Jesus, and immediately evident are the parallels between the birth of Jesus and the birthing of this nation, Israel. As you think about those two stories, two Josephs have two dreams and go down into Egypt. One Joseph mentioned in Genesis 37, the other Joseph is in Matthew chapter 2, both having dreams both taking their families, or ending up, rather, in Egypt. When God calls Israel out of Egypt some 400 years later, and he constitutes them a nation, he says of them, Israel, my firstborn son. God uses almost that language when Jesus emerges from the water of Jordan in the baptism, and he says, behold, my beloved son. After leaving Egypt, corporate Israel are taken through the Red Sea. Paul says of that, by the way, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, that they were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Matthew's first, the first uh, thing he does in terms of Jesus' public ministry is records Jesus' Jesus's baptism in the River Jordan, equivalent to the sea, and the descent of the Spirit on Jesus, equivalent to the cloud the commencement of his ministry. Israel go from there into the wilderness where they spend 40 years. They are tested. It's not coincidental that immediately after Jesus' baptism, he goes into the wilderness and spends 40 days. Like Israel, he is tested. The Israel, the corporate son of God in the wilderness, fails. Jesus, the particular son of God, the embodiment of all Israel is called to be in the wilderness, succeeds. 
And Jesus resists the devil's temptation by interestingly quoting the scriptures. Three times, it is written, it is written, it is written. It is not coincidental that all of those three quotations are taken from the book of Deuteronomy, the very book that God gives to Israel during their 40 years of wilderness wanderings. So in Matthew, Jesus repeats the history of Israel point by point, and he overcomes and succeeds where they failed. Those parallels are not coincidental. They are intended to indicate that what corporate Israel could not and did not do, this faithful Israelite, this righteous servant could and did. So David Holwilder says, he is the representation, a representative embodiment of Israel through whom the nations will be blessed. He is the faithful Israelite. This search for an Israelite who would be the seed that would be the blessing to the nations finds its fulfillment in the particularity of this one person who has come, my servant. Jesus, without apology, assumes both the identity and vocation of Israel. In John chapter 15, verse 1, we have that incredibly well-known statement where he says, I am the true vine. Now, have you ever wondered why Jesus included the word true in that phrase? If he was just trying to paint a metaphor, a picture, why wouldn't he simply say, I am like a vine and you are like the branches? It's not what he says. He says, I am the true vine. He is tapping into Israel's story and identity. Remember last week when we were in Isaiah chapter 5, and there is that song of the vineyard. My beloved has a vineyard and a very fruitful hill, it starts off. And he did all that was needed to make it fruitful. He plucked out the stones. He built a wall. He built a tower. He expected good fruit from it, and he never got it. What he got from it was stink fruit. That's what it says in the Hebrew. And then as he draws his listeners into that parable, ultimately he does a Nathan, what Nathan did to David when David was so enraged by the parable that Nathan had told and said, who is this person? And, David said, and Nathan says, you are the man. Well, Isaiah draws these people into the story. He says, what more could I have done for my vineyard? And they all go, nothing. And then he closes the net and he says, you are that vineyard. The people of Judah are the vineyard of the Lord. And throughout the Old Testament, Israel is regularly pictured as a vineyard or a vine. There's a lot of passages I could take you to. It's presented as clearly as anywhere in Psalm 80, where let me read to you a few verses. The psalmist says, You brought us from Egypt as though we were a tender vine, and drove away the heathen from your land and planted us. You cleared the ground, tilled the story. We took root and filled the land. It has echoes of Isaiah 5. The mountains were covered with our shadow. We were like the mighty cedar trees covering the entire land from the Mediterranean Sea to the Euphrates River. But now you have broken down the walls, which is exactly what he said he'd do in Isaiah 5. Leaving us without protection. The boar from the forest roots around us and the wild animals feed on us. Come back, we beg of you, O God of the armies of heaven, and bless us. Look down from heaven and see our plight and care for this, your vine. Protect what you yourself have planted. This is the cry of the psalmist. He's feeding into this idea that Israel is the true vine. 
There are so many numerous passages I could direct you to. Jeremiah 2.21, for example, where the prophet makes exactly the same complaint that Isaiah made. I had planted you like a choice vine and of sound and reliable stock. How then did you turn against me and turn into a corrupt and wild vine? Israel was the vine that failed. They were the false vine. That's why when Jesus gets up and says, I am the true vine, everybody understands that he's tapping into something of the Israelite story. Herman Ridderbos says, Jesus, by calling himself the true vine, applies to himself the redemptive historical description of the people of God. He's saying, that identity belongs to me. I am the true vine. I'm the true Israelite. And what he does with regard Israel's identity, he also does with regard Israel's vocation. Because he says in John chapter 9, verse 5, I am the light of the world. And in saying that, he's assuming corporate Israel's calling or vocation to be a light to the nations. When Paul's writing to his Jewish friends in Romans, he, he describes Israel's vocation as you are a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark. This was your calling. You were to be a light to the nations, but you are blind. This is, this is what Isaiah was saying. Who is blind but my servant? Who is deaf as you are? Corporate Israel had failed miserably, almost completely. They were, in fact, the blind leading the blind. Now, Jesus comes and takes on the identity and the vocation of Israel, this particular servant, Jesus. Do you remember when Simeon takes baby Jesus in his arms and steeped in the scriptures as a good Jew was, he says, my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all the nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles. He's tapping into Israel's vocation. He's saying, this is the particularity. This is the Israel who will not fail. This is the servant who will represent my interests, do my will, submit to me. He's the seed that Paul talked about in Galatians when he says this, and I'm reading from the message translation. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his descendants. You will observe that the scripture in the careful language of a legal document does not say to descendants, referring to everybody in general, but to your descendant. The noun note is singular, referring to Christ. The particularity the one servant that God looked for and could not find. I looked and there was no one to stand in the gap. So I, my own arm, it says, my own arm got me salvation. In the fullness of time, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, a Jew, the one who would be the seed of Abraham, through whom the nations of the earth would be blessed. So when you come to the servant song, and in next week we will unpack the fourth of those songs, really in some senses the holy of holies in terms of the book of Isaiah and perhaps not far off being the holy of holies for the whole of the Old Testament. This mysterious servant through whose ministry this community of faith in its actual corrupted condition can ultimately be transformed into a new Israel, a people that will take his message and be a light to all the peoples in his name. When you come into the New Testament, you quickly find that Israel is redefined around the Messiah. 
It is no longer a physical people. It is a spiritual people. That's the message of the New Testament. You, we, we unpack that in that series, One God, One Story, One People. This isn't stuff that really happened a long time ago that really doesn't impact us at all. Our identity and our vocation becomes tied up in Christ and what he does and did now becomes our identity and our vocation. So it's my deep conviction that the servant songs, in fact, find their fulfillment in Jesus. The one who on that first Palm Sunday rode into into Jerusalem with shouts of praise ringing around him. It's also my conviction that this mysterious servant whom Isaiah prophesied about thousands of years ago is, is the one who Isaiah 53 talks about, the one who, like a sheep before his shearers was dumb, was led to the slaughter. You know, the triumphant entry on Palm Sunday soon gave way. The shouts of praise gave way to the ferocious mob that shouted, crucify him, crucify him. The servant whom Isaiah said would be disfigured beyond all recognition was handed over to the empire to be beaten, to be crushed, to be crucified. He didn't utter a word. He did not open his mouth in his own defense. The Palm Sunday shouts of acclamation no longer resounded through the streets of Jerusalem. In its place, silence hung in the darkness as Isaiah's servant hangs on a tree. Thanks for listening. We hope it was an encouragement to you. Again, check out gatewaychurch.org.nz to find out what's going on within our church.